Hello, welcome to the Church 860 podcast. My name is Pastor Chris, and I'm the lead pastor of Church 860 located in Westerville, Ohio. Our podcast will have daily episodes uploaded where we have curated some of the best Bible teaching from across the globe. We hope you enjoy today's episode. We admit, Lord, we need you. Uh, Lord, that uh, even in this time and even as we hold this word, your word in our laps, God, we don't want it just to pass as an, an hour gone by. We want this to mold and to shape our lives, and we believe that's accomplished through the power of your Holy Spirit. So send the Spirit that we might have uh, our hearts changed, our lives molded, that we might look more like you, O oh God. I ask, Father, that you would be with me, that you would help me to rightly divide your word, not leading anyone astray. We thank you for this example in Jesus, and we thank you, Lord, that for the promise that comes through Jesus, a promise of living water. And Lord, we are all thirsty for that. Pour out your Spirit upon us now as we study your Word. In Jesus' name, amen. So we were in John chapter 6 last week, and, and really the idea that Jesus was trying to bring across is he explained to them, I am not a vending machine, because that's what they had come to him for, was to provide for him them bread again, right? Jesus in chapter 5 fed the multitude and, and, and gave them bread to eat. And now they're coming back in chapter 6 and saying, hey, that was good. Can we have some more of that? And Jesus says, you know what? I'm not just a vending machine. I'm trying to elevate your thinking here. I'm trying to get your mind off of merely the physical, merely the, the temporal, the here and now. And I don't think that Jesus is even trying to say that there's anything particularly wrong with the physical. We have to deal with the physical. We're, we're in it. We live it. But what he wants to say is, you know what? That's just a vapor. That's just a, a short amount of time. The 80 years that you and I are given, plus or minus, nobody knows. We each have a set number of days, the Word would tell us. In the, in the comparison of eternity... 80 years is, is nothing. And so Jesus is trying to get them to see that, to elevate their thinking to that of the eternal, to that of the spiritual, to say, don't just merely think of the physical. Let's look at the entire picture here. And the crowd that he was with almost started to get it, and then they bring things back down and almost start to get it, and they bring things and ended up the chapter. It was really kind of sad. In verse 66, as, as Jesus says, I am the bread of life, and, and you need to come to me. And he even makes a bolder statement to say, you, you've got to eat my flesh. You've got to drink my blood. It's, it's a matter of ingesting what I've done for you. In verse 66 of chapter 6, he says, many of the disciples could not handle that and ended up walking away. Really kind of a sad commentary, but that's the truth of the matter. Jesus wasn't about making friends or increasing his social network, seeing how many Twitter followers he had. He wasn't interested in that. What he was interested in was making disciples. And so he speaks the truth each and every time, even if it does step on toes, and, and molds and shapes using the truth. And he says, you, some of you aren't fit to follow me. Some of you aren't going to follow me. And, and we see that account happen in, in verse 66. Many of his disciples left. Not speaking of the 12 that were closest to him. And so as we begin chapter 7, really... I want to say we're turning a corner. We're not really turning a corner, but it is kind of a dividing mark between 6 and 7. And what we're headed into is really the last six months of Jesus' life. Okay? 
John spends the first six full chapters speaking of the first two and a half years of Jesus' ministry. Not a lot of detail, just picking certain spots. And now he's going to slow things down. And from chapter 7 through the end of the book, it's the last six months of Jesus' life. As we go into the Feast of Tabernacles here in chapter 7, it's the last time Jesus is going to see the Feast of Tabernacles. And so this is where the ministry happens. This is where Jesus is, is accomplishing the will of the Father. And so it's important that we, we kind of dial in, and that's what John is, is instructing us to do as we head into chapter 7, verse 1. you with me? We ready? It says, After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee for... He did not walk, or he did not want to walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. All right, so pause there for a second. We know that Jesus primarily does ministry in two locations, either in Jerusalem, there in Judea, or up to the north in Galilee. And so what he's saying here is as he enters into the last six months of his life, Jesus makes a decision. You know what? They're trying to kill me down there. I don't think I'm going to go down there much anymore. Um, I'm going to stay here and minister in Galilee. What I want us to see is, or I want us to hear is that it's not because Jesus is afraid of dying. It's not because Jesus is afraid of being killed. How do I know that? Well, because Scripture would tell us that perfect love casts out fear. Jesus is perfect love. And so He has no fear that He's going to die at the hands of the Jews. What He is, what he is saying is, now's not my time. If I go down there to Jerusalem now, they will try to kill me now. And now is not my time. The time has not yet come. And so he, he makes a decision to spend the, primarily the rest of his time in the north in Galilee. Now, it says that, but the rest of the chapter happens in Judea, in Jerusalem. Okay, Just so we understand that. Verse 2 says, looking to the south in, in Judea, in Jerusalem, it says, Now the Jews' feast of the tabernacles was at hand. His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe in him. All right, so pause for a second here. He says the Feast of Tabernacles is going on. And and as his brothers, his, his stepbrothers, James and um, Judah, Jude and Simon, they're trying to encourage him, maybe, although it does say he, they don't believe in who he is. Hey, there's a huge feast going on down in Jerusalem. You want to be well known. Um, this would be a good opportunity for you to take advantage of. You should get down there and, and start, you know, handshaking and start ministering to these people. Let your disciples see what you're about. It es they estimate that for the Feast of Tabernacles, for the various gatherings, that two and a half million people would enter into the city. So a great opportunity to get people to know you. And that's what his brothers are trying to encourage him to do. And Jesus is going to say, no, 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 that's not what this is about. And you will see that here in a minute. But let's just talk a little bit about the Feast of Tabernacles just so we understand what that was. In the Jewish culture, pretty cool, God established the Jewish culture as they entered into the Promised Land, kind of set up their calendar form. Everybody that was in the Jewish culture got three weeks of vacation every year. Sounds pretty good, right? 
I mean, when you start a job, usually it takes, what, five, maybe ten years before you get to that point where you've got three weeks of vacation. You might start with one and then work your way up to two and and get to three. God said, no, 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 we're going to party three times a year. You're going to get three weeks of vacation where everybody in, in everybody is off. It's not staggered vacation. I can't take this week off because Joe's taking this week off. Everybody was off at the same time, and they gathered together for these feasts. They would have the Passover, they would have Pentecost, and they would have the Feast of Tabernacles. And at the Feast of Tabernacles, they would gather together for eight days in remembrance of what God had done for them. So what they would do, kind of cool, is they would, for these eight days, they would move out of their homes. And they would set up these little pup tents, lean-tos, they didn't have the pup tents in that day, but that get the idea, these little little tents that their family would move into, they would camp out for a week, everybody would gather together, have a great time of fellowship, barbecuing with one another, enjoying the week and celebrating in these pup, pup tents, remembering that God had delivered them from that. Remembering that God had pulled them out of the wilderness, which is that's how they had to live in the wilderness. And, and so they're saying, God has delivered us from these things, and we don't have to live like this anymore. So they would spend a week remembering what God had done. That's the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths, it's also called, or, or tents. And so that's what they're celebrating at this time. Some two and a half million people gathering there in Jerusalem. And the brothers are like, hey, Go. You, you go and, and, and uh, you know, go do what you're going to do. And it says they didn't even believe in him. Now they will. James, Jude, they, they, they give their lives to Christ, but not until after he's resurrected. Not until after they see him rise from the grave. But then at that point, and we see some of the words, some of the, uh, uh, some of our scripture is written by Jesus' half brothers. His response, verse 6, Then Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. I like that. Jesus, he, he hears his brothers, and I don't know if he considers it for a minute or if he puts it out of his mind or whatever, but he says, you know what? This is not the right time. It's not time for me to go down. Now we're going to find out. He's going to go down in a few days. What he's saying is, it's not my time for me to go down publicly the way that you think that I should. And so he he backs off of their plan. And what we see in that is Jesus, once again, is surrendered completely to the will of the Father. He's always about whatever the Father wants. And not only do we see that he's surrendered to the will of the Father, he's surrendered to the timing of the Father as well. And you and I need to do that also because we can clearly or easily say, hey, God, have your way in me as long as it's right now. And what we need to do is say, have your way with me when you want to. In your timing, God. I'm not only surrendered to what you want to do with me, I'm surrendered to when you want to do it. Paul had to spend three years in the desert before his ministry began. Jesus waited 30 years from the time he was born until his public ministry began. You and I might have to wait on the Lord from now and again. God's timing is always perfect may not seem like it to us because we're always in a hurry. And that's what he says to his brothers. Your time is always already. You want the, the microwave society isn't something new. We, we, we expect everything instantly. Well, that's always been the case. Your time is always ready is what he says. I'm not going to go up the way you want me to. I'm not going up publicly. So it says in verse 9, When he had said these things to them, he remained in Galilee. 
But when his brothers had gone up, they also, then he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as if it were in secret, as it were in secret. Then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, Where is he? And there was much complaining among the people concerning him. Some said, He is good. Others said, No, on the contrary, he deceives the people. However, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. All right, so two and a half million people, Feast of Tabernacles going on, and everybody is abuzz about one person. Where is he? I've heard so much about this guy. I want to see him. Is he here? Is that him? Where is he? Is that, and, and, and it's going on. You're, they're all talking about Jesus. And Jesus is, is sitting back right now, and they're looking for him. Well, and then, and then this conversation breaks out. Oh, he's so good. I saw him heal the man at Bethsaida or Bethesda. I saw him, uh, you know, feed the 5,000. This is a good man. This is a good teacher. Perhaps he is the prophet. And others are saying, no, 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 no. You don't believe that. He's deceiving people. We can't, we can't, but everybody wanted to see who he was. Everybody has an opinion of who Jesus is. As we go out onto the street, um, Years ago, I designed that black T-shirt that just simply said Jesus because I know that even people reading the name of Jesus invokes a reaction. Everybody, everybody has an opinion about who Jesus is. And we see that here in the throng of people, two and a half million, and everybody's looking for Him. The sad thing, the sad commentary in that is, it says in verse 13, no one spoke openly of Him for fear of the Jews. So although this conversation is going on, but it's all, have you seen him? Oh, I, I don't think he's here yet. I we don't want to say too much. You know, our religious leaders, they, uh, they, they don't like him a whole lot. And, and so they're, they're quietly conversing about these. Uh, they didn't want to speak up. They had a fear of their leadership. And that's exactly the way their leadership wanted it. And really, that's kind of a sad commentary. That's a poor example, a poor way to lead. We don't lead by causing people to fear us. But that's the power that they exacted in those days. That's the, what the religious leaders were doing. If anybody speaks about Jesus, we're going to deal with you. And so they had to keep things quiet. It says in verse 14, Now, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. And so we see now Jesus is going to speak. He is going to say some things. Um, and, and, but he waits until the middle of the feast, the third day is what we understand. And he went to the temple and taught. What I like about this is this is the second time now he's gone to the temple. What did he do the first time he went to the temple? He cleansed it. Remember that? He, Jesus went in and he saw the money changers and he saw that uh, the, the, the people were offering these you know, temple-approved sacrifices and they were making gobs of money and he made a, a cord of whips and, and he drove them out and he cleansed the temple. And now the second time he goes, he's going and teaching. And you know what? Same is true with our heart. The first time he comes in, he cleanses, he purifies, he makes it whole, he makes it right, he cleanses us and allows us a position that the next time or as he continues in that, he can teach us and we're moldable and we're shapeable. Now that isn't just a one-time cleansing and a one-time teaching. That continues on in our sanctification and in our walk with Christ. He continually cleanses and He continually teaches. But cleansing needs to happen first before teaching can happen. And we need to be cleansed of Him that we can hear from Him. And that's what we see in the example here. So now He stands up 
to teach. Doesn't say exactly what he said. It's, uh, the result of that is verse 15. And the Jews marveled, saying, how does this man know letters, having never studied? And so they sit back, they listen to Jesus teach, and the leaders, the religious leaders are going, hey, um, hey Gamaliel, did, um, did that guy go to your school? And Gamaliel, uh, no, I've, I've never seen him. He, he didn't go to my school. And they ask one of the other you know, teachers of the day, hey, did he go to your school? No, no, he didn't go to my school. Yeah, but listen to him. He surely he studied with one of us. One of us taught him, right? But no, none of us have. He he speaks with this accent, you know. In in that day, the the religious elite, those that had been trained under a specific school, would speak a certain way. Oh, howdy, toddy. Yes, I am. You know, and 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 Jesus is speaking in a way that sounds like he has been traditionally educated. And what we see is, no, Jesus didn't go to any school. Jesus hung out with the Father. And I want to tell you, Calvary Chapel, whether you're a a college graduate or, or you've never done that, or you, like me, have a college degree that you don't use, just finally finished paying it off and I still don't use it. The greatest education that we can have is hanging out with Jesus. We see that in the disciples after Jesus is resurrected. Peter and John, they Peter just nails this sermon. Solid sermon in Acts chapter 3 and Acts chapter 4. Just awesome. And he hammers the Jewish leaders of the day. You're the ones that crucified Christ. And he's so bold in what he's saying. A fisherman. Blue-collar guy. Not much going for him. And they, the religious leaders look at him and go, whoa. And they say in Acts chapter 4, verse 13, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and they perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. The greatest schooling that we can have is hanging out with Jesus, is studying His Word, is spending time with Him in prayer. I love that Calvary Chapel is on board with that. Because as I said, I don't have a seminary degree. I don't have my MDiv. I don't have, I don't have a college education when it comes to biblical ways at all. What I do have is 16 years sitting under a shepherd that faithfully taught me the Word. And I asked Pastor Dave years and years. I asked him many times. Dave, I, I, you know, he, I had been um, ordained as a pastor years ago, and I said, would it be right? Should I go to school? Should I, should I go to the Calvary Chapel Bible College? I asked him three, four times over the course of 16 years. I mean, every time. Chris, no. No, you don't need to do that. You don't need to do that. Everything they're going to teach you there, I'm teaching you here. And so Calvary Chapel looks at how long you've been with Jesus as more important than what you what it says on a piece of paper. I dig that. It, 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 it looks at what the biblical mandate is. They, they marveled, not because they were untrained or uneducated, or, or not because of even what Peter said. They marveled because they had been with Jesus. And if anybody gets anything out of my life, that's what I want it to be. It's not that I am anything or I have anything to say. If, if you get something out of my life, I hope that you recognize it's because I've been with Jesus. 
I pray that we would strive for that as well. This is not a soapbox about whether or not you should go to college. You pray about that. You decide that. I don't think it's all that it's cracked up to be personally, but that's just my opinion. You're entitled. Do do what you believe God is pressing you to do. What I see in my life is that I want more people to see Jesus in my life, so I'm going to remain uneducated and untrained and allow the Spirit to work in my life. And that's that's what I feel like God has called me to do. And so I'll just continue to press into Jesus. I'm glad that Calvary Chapel recognizes that. But they see that in Jesus even. Hey, he didn't go to school yet. Listen to the authority in which he speaks. The authority he has is, of course, because he's been with the Father. So verse 16 says, Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. I love this. Continually, we've seen it time and again as we've studied the book of John. Jesus is always saying, my authority is not my own. I'm a sent man. I'm just simply accomplishing the will of the one who sent me. I am surrendered to the will of the Father. Jesus, fulfilling the role of an ambassador or a steward. And he says, I'm a sent one. I'm just, that's what a good steward does. We don't have the position of steward so much anymore. But in that day and age, there would be somebody named in your house to be a steward, and it would be the one that would go and make your purchases of your groceries and your linens and your taking care of managing the house. And you would take the message of the, the person of the house, those that own the house, and say, this is the things, these are the things that we want. He wouldn't represent himself as a steward. He was representing his house. An ambassador. We do have those in this day and age. We send ambassadors to other countries. And those ambassadors, they don't carry their own message. They carry the message of the country that sent them. Sent them. So is true with Christ. And that's what he's proclaiming. Hey, I'm just proclaiming what God has done. I'm proclaiming that I have been with the Father and this is the will of the Father. We've been sent as well. So verse 18, he says, He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. Do not, did not Moses give you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? Love that. Jesus drives to the heart of the matter. He's like, you know what? Let's get to the, let's get to the point here. Why are you seeking to kill me? He's like, Moses gave you the law and none of you keep the law. Again, proclaiming that they are evil. Not, not out to make friends here, but out to make disciples. That's a, a piercing question. And the people answered and said, you have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? Certainly not true. Uh, actually blasphemous. Saying that he has a demon. Jesus answered and said to them, I did one work and you all marveled. Moses therefore gave you circumcision. Not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, right? Circumcision came from Abraham. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses should not be broken, and you are, are you angry with me because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to the appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. All right, so now he gets to the, the issue at hand, what they were wanting to kill him over. We go back to chapter 5 where Jesus at the pool of Bethesda heals a man on the Sabbath. 
They take great issue with this and they want to kill him for it. And now he's making yet another defense. This is like the fourth defense that he's made now. And he speaks to them and he says, you guys don't even keep the law of Moses. Why do you seek to kill me? And then he says this, Moses, in, in the law of Moses, the law that Moses gave you, you have the, the covenant of circumcision. And Moses commanded that circumcision would happen to the young boys, the babies, on the eighth day. Every male that was born in the Jewish community on the eighth day was circumcised. And it was always on the eighth day. Even if the eighth day fell on the Sabbath, they would still circumcise the boy. We understand, right? Do I need to go into what circumcision is? I don't particularly want to. It, painful, right? We're good. Okay, I'll leave it alone. But it's a cutting away. Let's say that. And he says, you guys cut away on the eighth day. I made a man well on the Sabbath. What, why, what do you hold against me? Why, why would you hold that against me? It's a great point. It's a great point. They, that you cut away, Jesus made whole. Now some of them from Jerusalem said, is this not He whom they seek to kill? But look, He speaks boldly, and they say nothing to Him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is truly the Christ? So they look at Jesus, the crowd is gathered around, everybody's listening to Him speak, and everybody at the same time is kind of watching over there where the religious leaders are. As Jesus is speaking, they just they keep looking up. Are they going to get him? They, they're seeking to kill him. Do they? Well, there he is. Why are? And then, then they start to question. Well, maybe they really think that he is the Christ, but they're not saying it. And so confusion now starts to happen for them to say, "Well, what, what do they believe? Is this the Christ? Is this not the Christ? We can't. Our leadership is not giving us any information." Once again. Poor leadership. They're ruling with an iron fist. They're pressing them with their thumb. And we see now they're creating confusion. I've been, I've been the pastor here for about six months. I'm still learning about leadership and what all that entails. But one of the things that I have picked up is that we would, um, as I have a vision for the church and have a desire to press us in a certain direction, I believe, from the Lord, many would say, make it as succinct and, and, and simple as possible. And so as I prayed about what that would be for 2014, I've already shared this, I came up with the phrase, or I discovered the phrase in Romans 12.12, continuing steadfastly in prayer. Pretty succinct, pretty simple. And my hope is that as I communicate that to you over the next few weeks, that that's you would figure out, that we would figure out that that's the heartbeat of the church for 2014. That we as a church will continue steadfastly in prayer. Which reminds me, I did forget one announcement. <laughs> We have decided, because we want to continue steadfastly in prayer, and we recognize that for many of you, 7.30 is too early in the morning, which is when we have our prayer meeting, that we're going to offer a second prayer meeting. For those that would rather sleep in, those that would rather just simply come to second service, you're welcome to do that. If you want to join us in prayer, we're going to start starting next Sunday, a second prayer service starting at 10.20. So here in the back of the sanctuary in the corner over there, if you're not somebody that gets up early and wants to meet us here at 7.30, join us at 10.20. You're coming to church at 11 o'clock. What's an extra 45 minutes or so? Come in, pray with us. We're going to continue steadfastly in prayer. That's our heartbeat for the church. And so 
I believe that's what good leadership would do is to say this is the path that we're on. The Jewish leaders of those days were not doing that. They're not, as the crowd is looking, now they're not even sure if these guys like Jesus or they don't. They're not sure. Do the rulers know indeed that this is truly the Christ? They're asking. So verse 27 says, however, and now they consider some things. However, we know where this man is from. But when the Christ comes, no one knows where he is from. And so they think back to what the, the Old Testament would have taught. And actually, this is a misunderstanding of what it says in Isaiah chapter 53. They believed in those days that, that the Messiah would just simply come on the scene. That he would just show up and nobody would be able to trace where he was from. They kind of got that idea from Isaiah 53. You can read that in your own time if you want to and, and understand how that was misunderstood. Uh, but And so they, they're thinking, hey, this can't be the Christ. This can't be the Messiah because we know where Jesus comes from. And so Jesus is going to answer that. He says in verse 28, Then Jesus cried out as He taught them in the temple, saying, you both know me and you know where I am from and I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true whom you do not know. But I know him for I am from him and he has sent me. There it is again. He has sent me. He has sent me. He has sent me. The f Jesus is continually saying he has sent me. But what does he say? Yeah, you know where I'm from, but you don't know who I'm from. You don't know the father is what he's saying. Strong statement. And, and kind of fulfilling prophecy in that as well. I know Him for I am from Him and He has sent me. Time and again, Jesus proclaims that He is sent. And you know what? So are you. So are we. As Christ followers, we follow the example that He has given us and we are commissioned in Matthew chapter 28 to go into all the world and to make disciples just as He did. We are sent as well. Are we going? Church, are we going? Are we obeying the commandment to go into all the world? Are we sharing the Gospel? Are we living it like Jesus lived it? He is a perfect example of an ambassador, a steward. And we place that yoke upon our back as well, church, to go into all the world. We, we need to proclaim we've been sent. Well, this statement upsets the crowd. In verse 30, they, Therefore they sought to take Him, but no one laid a hand on Him because His hour had not yet come. Love that. Jesus is untouchable until the right time. He's like, ah, no, not yet. Not yet. We've got about six months and then I'll, 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 I'll let you take me. But right now, no. And many of the people believed in Him and said, when the Christ comes, will He do more signs than these which the man has done? This man has done? That's great. They're looking at the life of Jesus and they look at the miracles that He's performed and they're like, what more do we want Him to do? Look at the resume he's got. And many, it says many people believed in him. So their, they, their eyes are open. When the Christ comes, is he going to do more? This must be the Christ. The Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things concerning him. And the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. Then Jesus said to them, I shall be with you a little while longer. And then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. 
Then Jesus said among, or I'm sorry, then the Jews said among themselves, where does he intend to go that we shall not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What is this thing that he said? You will seek me and not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. So Jesus makes this bold statement. I'll be with you a little while longer, but where I'm going, you can't come. And then they're like, well, what is this? A game of hide and seek? I bet we can find you. I bet you're going to the Greeks to the dispersion. Does he go to the Greeks? Well, no, not him personally, but he sends the church. After he's resurrected, he sends the church into the dispersion. So yes, he is going there, just not right now. What's he speaking of? Heaven. I'm going back to the Father is what he's saying. I'll let you take me at one point. I will give up my life because that's what God has commanded me to do. I'm going to defeat sin. I'm going to defeat death. I'm going to resurrect to life. I'm going back to the Father. And then he makes the statement, and you can't come because you don't believe. Strong. Jesus drawing a line in the sand saying, you're not coming to heaven. That's a bold statement. One of the guys I follow on Twitter is uh, Pastor Mark Driscoll. He's the pastor of Mars Hills Church out in, in Seattle. like him a lot. I agree with most of what he says. Not everything, but that's true of most of the guys I listen to. But uh, he tweeted a tweet this week that I was just like, oh, Mark, that's strong. In this politically correct day where you, you have to be careful what you say, he, Mark drew a line in the sand this week, and I was proud of him for it. Kind of like Jesus did in this moment. Mark said on Twitter, some near, I don't, I don't know, maybe near a million followers, hear this. He said, if you are not a Christian, you are going to hell. It's not unloving to say that. It's unloving to not say that. I was like, wow, right on, Mark, right on. If you are not a Christian, you're going to hell. And that's why being sent is so important. Because hell is real, and it's eternal. And there are many going there. And we are called to share the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that others might turn and come and live with Christ forever in heaven. Hell is real. And I like what Mark said. It's not, what did he say? It's not unloving to say that. Many would say today, oh, you are so unloving by telling people that they're going to hell. No, in fact, the opposite is true. It's unloving to not say that because it's the truth. And this life is a vapor. And all you've got is 80 years to make that decision or so. And then eternity to consider whether or not you made that decision. Jesus draws a line in the sand. He says, where I'm going, you can't come unless you believe that He sent me. All right, so that's the end of that exchange. And then a few days go by, and it says in verse 37, on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. 
I love that. He, he stands up in the middle of the crowd. Anybody that's thirsty, come to me. And I will give you all the water that you need. I will give you everything that you need. Now, some insight into the Feast of Tabernacles. On the eighth day, the great day of the feast, the last day, and, and some of the events that would happen. Really cool picture, and it makes a, makes a lot of sense once we tie this all together. Bear with me for just a minute. Each of the seven days prior to that, the high priests, they would go to the Pool of Siloam with these pitchers as they were celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. They would dip their pitchers in the Pool of Siloam. They would march them back through the throng of people singing the Song of Ascents the, uh, through the, the Psalms. And, and then they would gather on the Temple Mount and they would take their pitchers and they would pour them out on the ground. And what it represented was that, hey, all the while that we were in the desert, we had the rock following us, the rock that provided the water that we need. And, and so we have water aplenty, is what they're saying. They're pouring it out on the ground. We have all that we need. Well, on the eighth day, the great day of the feast, they would do the same. They would go to the pool of Siloam, but rather than dipping their pitchers in the water, they would pretend to. They wouldn't dip them in. They wouldn't fill their jugs with water. And then they would march to the Temple Mount just the same as they did the other times. They would stand on the grounds and they would pour out these empty pitchers and to the crowd. And what it represented is we have arrived in the Promised Land. God has brought us to where we need to be and He no longer provides us water from the rock. What we are waiting now is for the water from the Messiah. And in that moment, Jesus stands up and He says, everybody that's thirsty, come to Me. I will give you rivers of living water. Fulfilling what they are looking for in that very moment as they see the symbol, as they see all this, Jesus stands up and He says, it's Me. I'm the one you're looking for. I'm the Messiah. I, I can quench the thirst that you have in your life. Come to Me. Come to Me. This is His invitation. In verse 39, John says, but this He spoke of concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in Him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So John kind of gives some commentary on the events there on the eighth day of the feast. And he says, the Spirit hadn't come yet. That happens on the day of Pentecost after Jesus rises. The Spirit comes in power. And you can read about that in the beginning of the book of Acts. And that Spirit is the water that He would speak of, pouring out of our hearts, pouring out of our lives those that would believe in Him. Therefore, many from the crowd, it says, when they heard this saying, said, this, or truly, this is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, will the Christ come out of Galilee? Has not the Scripture said that the Christ was from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem where David was? And so they look at this, and as they see Jesus with His arms stretched out, I am the living water. Come to Me. I will, I will quench your thirst. I will give you all that you need. Out of you will come streams of living or rivers of living water. They look at Him and oh, that is the Christ. Their eyes are open. That is Him. This is the prophet that we have been looking for. But then some doubters, they stop and they say, well, well no. No, um, He's from Galilee. Well, Will the Christ come out of Galilee? Doesn't it say in the Old Testament that the Christ will come out of Bethlehem, the city of David? Well, He did. We just celebrated it, right? Jesus, at Christmas, born in Bethlehem, 
fulfilling the prophecy. Now, did he spend his whole life there? No, because you know somebody wanted to kill him even when he was a baby, Herod. And so Joseph, in a dream, he says, you know, hightail it out of here, head down to Egypt, spend a few years down there, and then you can come back. And then a few years go by, uh, an angel visits Joseph in a dream and says, hey, move back. But Joseph, rather than moving back to Bethlehem, he moves to Galilee up north. And that's where Jesus is coming from. Well, nothing good comes out of Galilee. How could that be the Messiah? You and I would say it. Nothing good comes from Michigan. Right? It's the only end up morning. Michigan needs Jesus too. <laughs> that's where that's where Tom was going to say, "Well, Tom Brady came from Michigan," and I would say, "Exactly." <laughs> I'm not a Patriots fan. I'm from New York. I can't be a Patriots fan, right? Especially not Tom Brady. Ooh, he drew a line in the safe. Jesus fulfills all of the prophecies of the Christ in the Old Testament. He doesn't miss one. Yes, he is from Bethlehem. He was born there. So there was a division among the people because of him. Now some of them wanted to take him, but no one laid hands on him. Then the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees and said to them, and he, who said to them, why have you not brought him? So evidently a call went out to the officers by the, the Pharisees. Hey, go get him. Uh, we need to bring him in for questioning. The officers answered, no man ever spoke like this man. The, the officers were impressed. Then the Pharisees answered them, are you also deceived? He's, they're slamming him. Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? They're like, we're smart enough to figure out that this guy isn't the Messiah. They're wrong in that, obviously. But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Whew. Spitting on the people that they're supposed to be leading. Oh, they don't know nothing. These losers. Good for nothing. That's not the model we have in our church. That's not the model that Christ gives us. And those that are called to leadership, when you step into a role of leadership, it's servant leadership. They are so elite, these religious leaders of the day. They, you know, they had the big keys. They had the cool parking spots. They had the nice places at the restaurant. They had everything that they wanted. And Jesus is like, no, I'm going to wash the disciples' feet. And that's the example I want you to follow. Completely different. Christianity should, never should be elitist. So finishing up the chapter, it says, Nicodemus, who came to Jesus by night, being one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he's doing? And they answered and said to him, Are you also from Galilee? Search and look, for no prophet has risen out of Galilee. And everyone went to his own house. Remember Nick? Remember Nicodemus? Meeting Jesus in the middle of the night on a rooftop, sitting there drinking a Coke together or whatever it was. This nice, quiet conversation. Nicodemus, in the religious leadership, he, he steps up, albeit kind of weakly, he steps up here and he says, hey, um, we, we don't even really know what Jesus is about. We've never really questioned him. Should we judge him before we even question him? And they're like, oh, dude, you're from Michigan too. You, are you, you're one of us. You're supposed to know the, the prophecies. You're supposed to know what's going on. You're supposed to understand the Scriptures. You read the Scriptures, dude. Go back home and do some homework. Nobody good comes from Galilee. 
There's no way that this could be the Messiah. Again, misunderstanding where truly Jesus was from. And everybody went to their own house. I love this. Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus stands up in the, on the eighth day, the great day. He says, are you thirsty? Are you thirsty? And the answer is yes. We are all thirsty. Every person created is thirsty. Many do not know what they are thirsty for. And many try to quench their thirst with the physical, with the things of this world. And what that does is we learned last week, it leaves us lacking. We talked about that, right? Everybody stuffed themselves on Thanksgiving and Christmas and New Year's. And the day after Thanksgiving and the day after Christmas and the day after New Year's, guess what? You're hungry again. And Jesus says, I'm the peg that fits the hole. I'm the only peg that fits the hole in your heart. I'm the one that quenches the thirst. You never want to thirst again? Stop looking for it in sex. Stop looking for it in drugs. Stop looking for it in alcohol. Stop looking for it in your career. Stop looking for it in education. Stop looking for it in your family or your social status or anything else. It cannot be found. Those things will always be lacking. You will always be thirsty if that's where you turn. But if you come to me, he says, you'll never thirst again. And so that's the invitation for those that are in this room, and I know there are, that, that do not know Christ as their Lord and Savior. He says, come. Come. Are you tired of chasing after the things of this world? Have they left you disappointed? Have they left you tired? Have they left you upset? Stop chasing them and come to Jesus. It's a matter of believing in Him. And believing what He has done. That He has fulfilled all the prophecies of the Messiah. That He is the One who came to die on our behalf. That our sins might be forgiven. We place our faith in that. That's what it means to believe in Him. That he, We believe that He died for us. That He defeated sin and death. And He resurrected to life. That we might have life in Him. And Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit, when we surrender our hearts to Him, will make it so that we never thirst again. I know a lot of you know that already. I'm so grateful for those that I walk shoulder to shoulder with in this church that have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. And if that's you today, if you have had your thirst quenched by Jesus, then hear the call that you're sent. Hear the call and see the example in our Savior that you are a man or a woman on a mission from God. He has commissioned us that we might go into the world and make disciples just the way Jesus did, telling others, are you thirsty? Because I got something that will take your thirst away. His name's Jesus. Hear that call, Christian. May we go boldly as Peter and John did. Amen? Let's stand. Let's close in prayer. Jesus, we thank You and praise You that You are a good and gracious and loving God and that You have quenched our thirst, Lord. I pursued so many things in this life and tried to fill that hole in my heart with so many things only to find there was never a right fit until I met You. 
I pray for the heart here that doesn't know You. I pray in this moment that they would place their faith in You, confessing that they're a sinner in need of a Savior. I pray they would give their lives to You here and now. And I will say to you in this room, if that is you today, if that is your desire to give your heart to Jesus, I'd love to know about that. Let's talk about that. God, I pray for the rest of us, those that have placed our faith in You, that have experienced the thirst quenched, that we would shine brightly for You, that we would be bold for You, God, fulfilling all that You have for us in these days. I pray that as a faith family, we would continue steadfastly in prayer each and every day, surrendering our hearts, surrendering our lives, becoming ambassadors for You until we see You face to face. Keep us faithful. In Jesus' name, Amen. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Church 860 Podcast. We hope that you've enjoyed it. If you have, we ask that you would like and subscribe to the podcast so that you can get daily updates. If you'd like to know more about Church 860, please visit church860.com. Thank you. God bless.